Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. The Other Hand is part of the Acast Creator Network. Hey Jim, welcome back. A warm welcome for you, returning from your week on the beach. Glad to see you've got a very nice tan there. One of the things that you will have noticed, I think, if you've been listening to what I have been doing, working very hard on the Other Hand podcast while you've been away, I hasten to add, is that you were replaced for one of those podcasts by a robot. Is anybody nervous? They did indeed. They did indeed. We've had a couple of comments suggesting that we might try that as a permanent thing as opposed to a temporary thing while you were away, Jim. So what I wanted to ask you, a couple of things actually, what you actually thought of that experiment genuinely now. Did it work? Did it not work? Was it too rough around the edges? Was the voice too robotic? Was the debate itself that I had with this, shall we say, Trump supporting robot of interest? Did I achieve my goal of engaging respectfully? And engaging at all, which I think is the problem with modern politics, is that we don't engage with the opposition. We just exist in our own bubbles. And the more general question, Jim, is that now that you have been replaced by a robot, we have been told many times about the jobs apocalypse associated with artificial intelligence. And to ask you how you feel about perhaps being a leader, one of the first people to have been to have experienced this jobs apocalypse. In that podcast, I did use some primitive software to have that quasi-dialogue with the robot, the robotic Trump supporter. And since I did that, I thought I was quite clever in, in doing all of that. I discovered that technology has moved on yet again, Jim, and that there is now software being trialed. You can't get it on general release, but OpenAI, the parent company of ChatGPT, is trialing a form of AI that allows you to go straight from text, from text prompts, to video. And this it has all sorts of mind-blowing implications, many of which I suspect we haven't thought of yet. But people are making the obvious point that uh, it's suited at the moment to creating short clips, and that will have all sorts of implications, one would have thought, for industries like, for example, advertising. But AI is moving on, even on the other hand, Jim. So how do you feel about being part of the jobs apocalypse? Well, Chris, the background to that was an email I got from a listener in the United States who actually hails from Waterford going back over 40 years. I discussed with you, 
you know, how we'd handle it because there was a lot of points made, some of which we both of us, I think, would disagree with. Some you might have certain sympathies with. Having gone to all that ever, I think it was important to respond to the listener. Uh, but it was going to take uh, three or four days, actually, to type up a response to that. So I think you, given how much free time you have on your hands and given your love of technology, uh, you came up this, I thought it was an ingenious idea to respond to that. I think it's something that I'd like to see us doing more of. I'm not sure if the two of us could do it simultaneously or not. I know you'll answer that. So yeah, I, I thought it was fascinating. I thought it was interesting, really interested in what people have to say about it, you know, how it worked, etc. Was I concerned by it? Uh, a little bit, I guess, that you, you could turn around and do something like that without me being present and all that. In the year of the vote, which we keep talking about, the ability to create deep fakes, because as I say, I used yeah. very primitive software. If I was less of a cheapskate and had paid up for it, I could have, I think, replicated your voice, actually. I was just going to say that, Chris. I think one thing the listeners would actually miss would be my dulcet Waterford accent. Indeed. Yeah. No, it was good. Well done. Great to see a bit of innovation. I'd say I, I'm just back on terra firma a couple of hours ago, so the head is a little bit all over the place. But there's a couple of pieces of data that um, in Ireland that I'd like to talk a little bit about. We got the residential property price index for December and national average residential property prices up one and a half percent on the month, 4.4 percent year on year. Dublin up 1.4% in the month, 2.7% year on year. And outside of Dublin up 1.5% on the month and up 5.7% year on year. This was the fourth monthly increase in a row. And it was the fastest monthly pace in two years. So these are, okay, I have to say this is the end of the year. You know, it's it's the December index which reflects what would have happened a couple of months previously. But notwithstanding that, these are very strong numbers and they do suggest that there's still a lot of heat in the housing market. And I saw one commentator in response to the latest data saying, how is this happening? You know, how is it possible given how much interest rates have gone up um, and all, all of that stuff? But the reality, of course, is that um, I have been out involved a little bit on the purchase side of the property market here in Dublin over recent months with somebody else, helping out somebody else actually. But um, in the apartment market in Dublin, um, it's mad. You know, every time you put in a bid, um, there's a counter bid and it's just bid way, way above what the asking price is. So I think there's quite a simple explanation actually, and that is that demand is still totally outpacing supply, particularly in the second-hand market. And it's also the case that there's a lot of people out there that can get access to significant levels of deposit, and that gives them the wherewithal to bid much higher than um, the asking price. So it's, I think it's still, Chris, a question of demand and supply. And Do you think the central bank should tighten its regulations again to higher deposits and lending limits and all those Good, good old-fashioned things that we've seen in the past. Now, Chris, we have over 153 billion on deposit in the banking system. 
So I think by tightening the regulations further and by increasing the required deposit, you're just creating even greater inequality in the housing market because you're basically handing it on a plate to those who have access to those significant deposits. Whereas for people, and this is the majority of people who cannot, who struggle to get the required deposit, it's just going to price them out of the market totally. So no, I, I don't think there's any call whatsoever here for tightening further by the central bank. Do you disagree with me? No, I don't actually, Jim. I think that it is a fundamental supply-demand imbalance as for the reasons that you describe and that messing around with regulations won't uh, attack or cure the, the source of the problem. And it clearly is the need to build even more properties perhaps than we, than we thought previously and that the, there are only two possible solutions now well, I, sh- I shouldn't say only two, I can think of three off the top of my head, is that if interest rates went up significantly from here, I think that would have an effect, that would have a dampening effect for obvious reasons. Build more houses and flats, that I think is the, the obvious one to do. The third one is a, a good old-fashioned recession. That would, to a certain extent, at least sort it out and would be perhaps, uh, a, along with interest rates, the the two are probably related, the ugliest way of doing it. But you talked about inequality in the housing market, Jim. I know you've got some more data you want to come on to, but I think it's appropriate to bring it up here. Both of us have noticed that the chief executives of lots of financial institutions around the world are announcing disappointing results and awarding themselves multi-million dollar, pounds, euro pay packages. I'm not a revolutionary. I'm certainly not a Marxist. I'm not a hard lefty, Jim. I'm probably more lefty than you. But my God, when you read these stories about about these institutions and people paying themselves twenty to thirty million dollars a year for not very sparkling results, uh, the conclusion I think that is tempting to arrive at is that boy, the system is rigged, isn't it? Yeah, I, I was struck by the announcement about Citigroup. They paid their CEO Jane Fraser six percent more last year, taking her salary up to twenty six million. Okay. And that happened despite a 40% decline in profits last year. And also in January, Citigroup announced that it was letting 10% of its workforce go. So, you know, you're talking about cutting the workforce. You're talking about declining profitability. You're talking about the need to cut costs and expenses. And yet you award the CEO overseeing all of that 6% pay increase. Uh, that That is the stuff of revolution, actually. And I, I think you don't have to be extreme left to get really pissed off by this sort of thing. I mean, it's, it is it is outrageous. But it, there's a lot of it going around, and we, we have discussed the whole issue about um, executive pay you know, for some time now, and it, it's it's an ongoing story. But I was also struck closer to home by the latest revelations out of RTE about the staff that left or stroke or left go from RTE over the last 12 months being paid absolutely huge severance packages. And um, the, the level of transparency around those packages and who knew and who didn't and who was telling lies and who wasn't. There's, there's a whole um, mystery surrounding the whole thing at the moment, but it's it's something else that will just really get the blood boiling for a lot of people. Yeah, I think that the conclusion that the system is rigged 
can be drawn from a whole host of pieces of evidence, data. Um, when you look at the way in which boardrooms in the UK are staffed these days, it's a, it's an even more exclusive club than it than it ever was. Um, I think about my own personal circumstances and about how my route into a reasonable job in financial services in the 1980s. Somebody like me from a from a council estate in South Wales uh, via some some education into the city of London. I don't think kids could do that these days. I think all the ladders have been pulled up behind them. So I could go on and on about this, and I won't. I'll let you get back to the economic data, Jim. But the more I see of this, the more I can understand ordinary people's anger about how the system is rigged against them. Yeah, absolutely. There's no doubt about that. Uh, The other piece of data I just wanted to uh, talk a little bit about, it was published late last week. We got the December merchandise exports data. So we now have the picture for the full year 2023. Um, 197.2 billion in goods exports. That's 11.5 billion or 5.5% down on 2022. Uh, Within that, food and live animal exports down by 1.3%. That's the biggest indigenous sector. That's a respectable performance. The chemical and related products segment, which is huge, um, it declined by 4.9%. And within that, um, organic chemicals down by 19.6% and medical and pharmaceutical products down by 2.9%. So basically, what we're seeing here is this ongoing explanation about why Irish GDP declined last year. You know, it's it's the contribution from the multinational export sector. Um, I looked at the geographic breakdown um, exports to the United States down by 13.8%. Okay, no surprises there because the weakness in chemical and pharma exports was mainly to the United States. Uh, EU 27 exports up 1.1%. So, you know, that market continues to become more important, continues to grow for Ireland. But the the one that really interested me was our exports to Great Britain, excluding Northern Ireland, were up by 2.4%, okay? And our imports from Great Britain were down by 12.2%. So there is a significant reordering of the trade relationship between Ireland and Great Britain happening. And I I assume you can attribute a lot of that to Brexit and what's going on there. Great Britain and Northern Ireland, the United Kingdom, accounted for just 11.4% of Irish goods exports last year. So it's diminishing in importance. But of course, and I always stress this, that the indigenous food sector is the one that's most exposed to the UK market. But, you know, in, a, in an aggregate sense, the UK is becoming less important. But um, I, I, I'm just wondering, um, the, the, the trade relationship, it, it seems to be very one way in the sense... Well, that, I think that's got a lot to do. It's not entirely everything, but it's got a lot to do with checks and bureaucracy around trade. Uh, the situation has been that the UK has not been running checks on imports from the EU, including Ireland, ever since Brexit, and has just only now started to introduce them. So there's been a very asymmetric bureaucracy. There's been lots of bureaucracy for UK firms exporting to the EU, but none for EU firms exporting to the UK, at least no checks that the bureaucracy has been done right. Now that the checks are coming in, I wonder whether the 
export numbers that you've cited there for exporting to the UK will be as strong going forward because of those checks that are now coming in. We we will see. But it it is becoming more symmetrical. And I think that the sand in the wheels of trade between the UK and the EU, there's more sand being thrown in recently. So I think it's getting tougher, going to get tougher rather than easier for anybody selling into the UK now from the EU, including Ireland. Yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly one to watch how that evolves over the coming months. Uh, the EU27, um, Ireland's biggest export market, 41.2% of the total. Chris, I, I was reading over the last few days uh, Rory Stewart's book, uh, Politics on the Edge. Um, I love Rory Stewart, I have to say, and I, I think he is the uh, Prime Minister that Britain unfortunately didn't get. Uh, but anyway, that's water under the bridge. But there's, there's, there's a lot about that book that I found really fascinating. The whole, the total, total chaos around Brexit uh, was, was quite extraordinary. But generally, the dysfunctionality of the UK political system and the state apparatus absolutely astounded me. I assume Rory Stewart's um, portrayal is an accurate one. But by God, it is some level of dysfunctionality. But also... Um, some level of, I guess, snakes, um, the behaviour of Boris Johnson and the way in which a lot of the Tory MPs actually voted for Boris Johnson during that leadership um, campaign where Rory Stewart lost out. Uh, It's mad stuff. But as I read it, all I could really think of is your constant going on and on about the dysfunctionality of the UK. Uh, A lot of it resonates, actually. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com a lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Thank you for that. And if you want another book that would depress you just as much and describes, I think, in a different way, what Roy Stewart was talking about in his book, there's a, there's an well-known economic commentator, political commentator over here, Ian Dunt. And he wrote a book recently about Westminster, how it works and how it doesn't. And it's jaw-dropping from page one onwards. And there's a lot of detail. There's a lot of arcane detail about how Westminster doesn't work, how the political system is dysfunctional, and lots of reasons why that is the case. The main reason why it's come under so much pressure during the Brexit era is that for centuries now, Britain has relied on the good chap theory of government, that good, decent people would take this unwritten constitution and apply it in a reasonable sort of way. It's absurd when you think about it, but in a way it worked. It didn't work as well as having a written constitution, perhaps. It didn't work if you know we had even better chaps, and they usually are chaps, with notable exceptions running things. But one of the things that the Brexit process exposed is what happens when you have a good 
good chap method of government, relying on the goodwill, the good nature of the people in charge, when you actually get bad people in charge. And from Boris Johnson through a whole cast of characters that you've heard me go on about for so long that have been in the headlines for so long and still are. Some of them are trying to make a comeback. Liz Truss being a prime example of someone who, who thinks that she was right all along and is is trying trying to, to bizarrely uh, make a comeback. One of the, the, the other things that it exposed, the whole process exposed, was what happens when you put bad people in charge. When you put bad ideologues in charge who are at the extreme, whatever extreme it is, um, that will expose all the weaknesses in the system. The third element that really completed the trifecta of dysfunction, as I call it, is that you have bad people, you have ideological extremists uh, occupying the, the same seats, and you also have people who are not very good at what they do. As technocrats, they are useless. Like all populists, the old myth is that at least the fascists made the trains run on time. Historical accuracy would actually reveal that to be completely untrue. Fascists, populists do not make the trains run on time. They are hopeless at running things. They couldn't run a bath, let alone a country. So when you get bad people, ideologically extreme people, and people who are just not very good at what they do, sometimes all three in the same person, and for that I would definitely finger Boris Johnson. He is all three of those things. I don't think Rishi Sunak is a bad human being. I think he's probably at home a very decent man. But he's hopeless, Jim. He's absolutely hopeless, even in terms of being a good politician, which often involves being quite cynical, quite you know backstabby and all those sorts of things. He's, he's just useless at what he does. And we have a whole cadre of people who are one or all of those three things. And the thing that is most obvious about the cast of characters we have running things at the moment is that they're just useless. They couldn't run a bath, let alone a country. Just hold that thought, please. Yeah, Chris, for uh, purposes of balance... Um, we, today, are not the B- we are not the BBC, Jim. I, no, could be as un- I could be as unbalanced as I like. Yeah, but I want to bring a bit of balance to it, okay? Um, you, you're, you're basically talking about the right and fascists and so on. You know, today is the anniversary of the publication of the Communist Manifesto by... Uh, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. I think it I was, didn't know that, Jim. Yeah, published in 1848. And in the Communist Manifesto, basically, they were predicting that before too long, socialism would replace capitalism as the global economic order. But like um, all good forecasters, Jim, they were good forecasters. This is what I keep banging on about, about we, we, the way we should be doing economic forecasting. They said something would happen, but they didn't say when. I didn't say when, well, but I mean, I guess the point is, Chris, you know, you, you talk about right-wing populists. I think left-wing populists are every bit as bad. I would uh, agree. Of course yeah. I'd agree. It's just yeah. not Matt, as Manny around at the moment. Yes, uh, certainly in, in, in the UK. But you've got your left-wing populists strutting around the place in Ireland, haven't you? Yeah, we have people before profit, uh, de- very definitely. Um, we, we've discussed this before. I really can't categorize Sinn Féin at this stage. Oh. Um, are they far right or far left? I suppose it depends on what policy you're looking at. Yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting. We've spoken about this, the sort of circular nature of the political spectrum. The horseshoe theory of politics. Horseshoe theory of politics, absolutely. Mm. These people meet, the, the left and the right eventually meet somewhere in the middle. Yeah. 
Uh, and I'd ask you a, a question before we move on to the next topic, and that is, can you give me an example of a social system that has actually worked? Maybe there are some. Well, social democracy has worked in Scandinavia. I that's think, not socialism. I know. That's why I said social social democracy. Um, uh, off the top of my head, no, Jim, I can't. But uh, you, you, you know the sort of countries that have tried it and, and the consequences in contemporary countries like Venezuela. We've seen what's happened there. Um, but we've seen what right-wing populism has done to Argentina. So I think you're right that if, whether you're an extremist of the left or the right, you usually mess the country concerned up big time. Yeah, I think that's the that's the important point I was trying to get across, uh, that the, the, the centre is really important and it is really important that the centre holds, in my view. Okay, Jim, I wanted to talk about uh, a time-honoured subject, US interest rates and therefore everybody else's interest rates. There have been some big developments over the last few days, continuing a trend that we've seen since the beginning of the year. You'll recall that through the last couple of months of the final quarter of last year, 2023, financial markets of all kinds got very excited about the possibility that as soon as next month, March, uh, US interest rates would be falling. The idea of a March rate cut has all but completely disappeared. And the trend that we've noticed before of interest rate cuts being uh, expectations for them being reduced and the timing of them being pushed out, that's continued to the point where Larry Summers, the original economist who who correctly forecast the inflation and therefore interest rate problem that the US was going to get a couple of years ago, he made those very accurate forecasts, he's reappeared. Like, uh, you know, he can't keep a good man down. And he thinks there is a possibility that by the end of this year, 2024, US interest rates might actually have to go up from where they are now because of the underlying growth and inflation dynamics of the US economy. That's not been reflected in interest rate markets, but it has got a few people worried. We're spotting in some of the more esoteric corners of markets, swaps and other derivative markets, people hedging for the end of the year thinking, hang on a minute, maybe just maybe interest rates have to rise. That's It's a very small effect. Uh, markets are not pricing in a rate rise, but some markets are thinking about it. And that would be a major, major change with major implications for everybody. It's not happening in Europe. Uh, interest rates are still confidently forecast to fall in Europe. Too late, in our view, uh, as we've explained many times. In in the UK, it's all over the place. Um, we've got members of the Monetary Policy Committee, the all-important interest rate setting body in the UK. Last time around, uh, one or two of them voted for a rate hike. And only today we've had another member of the Monetary Policy Committee in the UK saying that unless rates are cut in a timely fashion, uh, that will come at a cost for living standards and could trigger a hard landing for the UK economy. So whichever main jurisdiction you're looking at, UK, Europe, United States, there are big developments in interest rate markets. And to the point where in the States, mortgage rates have gone over 7% again this week. Uh, at least for a short time. And I think that uh, we're in for a very rocky ride because to the extent that other markets depend on US interest rates, and they do, these things could have massive consequences for economies, for all financial markets, uh, and also property prices via mortgage rates. Uh, Just maybe, just maybe, the interest rate environment isn't anywhere near as benign 
as we were thinking only a f- very short while ago. Yeah, I mean, it's if, if you look at the data out of the United States, you can see why this is the case. The labour market particularly really strong. But uh, what about the UK and Europe? Well, I think that's in a completely different ballgame to, to the United States. The UK economy, the one that I know best because I'm sitting in it as we speak, that is very weak. And we've had a, an ongoing friendly dispute about how weak it has been. I've been very pessimistic and the numbers have not been that bad. They've been bad enough. They've been, let, let's call it flatlining for ages. Whichever indicator that you're looking at, let's say GDP, it's been flatlining. But one of the interesting trends of the last few days since the last GDP release in the UK has been, for the first time that I can ever remember, actually, people, commentators, journalists, financial journalists have been closely examining GDP per capita. Because whereas GDP, as I've said many times on this pod, it's up one month, 0.1, down 0.1 the next, up 0.3, down 0.3. That's the definition of flatlining. When you actually adjust for the rapid increase in UK population over the last year or two, GDP per capita is falling. And that's the squeeze on living standards that we can spot via other indicators like real household disposable incomes and that sort of thing. There's a real squeeze on in the UK on a per capita basis. It's not something we've ever looked at really closely in the UK because population doesn't move that quickly in such a short period of time as it has done over the case, course of the last year or two, mostly thanks to massively expanded immigration. Immigration has pushed GDP up, but has pushed GDP per capita, helped push GDP per capita down. So it's a bit like Japan in reverse, Jim, because everybody worried for years and years and years about Japanese GDP growth, either flat or negative, and didn't pay attention to GDP per capita yes. there because their shrinking population is, is is shrinking very rapidly. GDP per capita is actually fine and been growing quite strongly, uh, all things considered, in Japan. So we, we not only have we got the Japanification of, of the British economy from a no growth point of view, it's actually on a per capita basis much worse than Japan. So interest rates should be cut here too. It's whether or not those headwinds from the US are going to affect Europe and the United States. It's certainly going to affect the longer term interest rate markets. It already has. And they're all important for corporate borrowing and for things like fixed term mortgage rates. So we're not immune from those higher interest rate pressures in the States, but the domestic forces on interest rates in Europe and in the UK are definitely on the downside. And for me, if if it does pan out in this way, that UK and European interest rates do fall this year in the way that we and markets currently expect, and US interest rates don't, that seems to me to be a recipe for a much, much stronger dollar. The adjustment mechanism will come via exchange rates. And that links back to your earlier comments about trade. The one thing that's really important for trade, there are lots of things that drive trade flows, but exchange rates, of course, are, are up there as important drivers. Yeah, it's, 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 it's fascinating because yeah, I was just going to get to that point about the dollar because the scenario you described there where US interest rates possibly rising again because of the strength of the US economy, uh, that then reverberating into the European economy and exacerbating existing weakness in that economy. Um, and it could actually accelerate uh, the European Central Bank's interest rate easing. Uh, so that definitely is a recipe for a much stronger dollar, you would have thought. Can you imagine the political consequences of the Federal Reserve raising interest rates towards the end of this year? Because yeah. there's something else happening towards the end of this yeah. year, as you might well know. 
Yes, ab- it, absolutely. Yeah, because Donald Trump has been hinting that he's he will be extremely cheesed off with the Fed if they cut interest rates. In his words, not mine, to help Biden. But on this extreme scenario that we're talking about here, that they, they won't be helping Biden at all. Quite the reverse. So it's the political dilemma as well as the economic dilemma for the Fed is possibly going to be excruciating this year. Chris, finally, um, a lot going on in Russia and Ukraine over the last few days. I mean, I was away when Navalny uh, was murdered. Uh, How do you read the Ukraine situation at the moment? It it certainly would appear that um, the Russians are gaining the upper hand. Well, we've been describing the front line in the war a very long, long front line in eastern Ukraine as being in stalemate ever since the failed counteroffensive of last summer that Ukraine tried to undertake uh, to get more territory back and failed. And we've described ever since then a fluctuating, uh, lots of people sadly dying and being injured on that front line, but there hasn't been much movement. It has been stalemate. I don't think we can describe it in that way anymore. Russia is advancing. And there is a possibility that Russia is now going to win this war. It's only a possibility. Nothing is guaranteed. Uh, But they have taken an important town called Avdivka. And the town that they last took was a place called Bakhmut back in May of last year. And following their capture of Bakhmut last year, uh, it was hoped that the Ukrainians could encircle that town and rain down an awful lot of destruction on Russian troops. That situation has, is long gone, and Russian troops are breaking out of Bakhmut and are threatening local villages there. Ukraine says it is running out of ammunition. I've no reason to doubt their words. I think that is absolutely true. But they are also confronted by a Russia that has completely reoriented its economy to war production. So you can watch on the internet any number of tanks and other armored vehicles being blown up by Ukrainian drones and artillery every single day. But it doesn't matter because Russia is producing a prodigious, uh, well in excess amount of tanks, well in excess of anything it produced pre-war. Its entire economy is now geared to tank, heavy vehicle production. It has an unlimited supply of recruits that it is feeding into what is called the meat grinder of these battles. Uh, A prominent pro-Russian war blogger today committed suicide because he revealed just how many Russians have been killed in the capture of that town, Avdivka. I hope I'm pronouncing it reasonably well. And he said something like 16,000 Russian soldiers have been killed. And such was the pressure from various Russian sources on him that he appears to have shot himself. Uh, Russia does not want uh, it to be released just how many troops are being killed and wounded. We think uh, publicly the estimates that I see are that in the war so far, Russia has had over 300,000 people killed or wounded in in this two-year war. Remember, in the trauma that was Vietnam for the United States, there were 56,000 people, Americans, killed, a lot more Vietnamese, of course, and we don't know how many Ukrainians have been killed or wounded. But the bottom line is that morale in the Ukrainian army is, is falling, and they are losing positions. The, 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 the way in which Avdivka was taken by the Russians was chaotic. It wasn't a controlled withdrawal in the way that Bakhmut was. And there was a story in the New York Times yesterday about how 
a very large number of Ukrainian soldiers were killed and or captured, followed sadly by summary executions of those prisoners of war by Russian troops, according to various sources. So it's looking pretty ugly for Ukraine right now. And th- of course, the, the big absolute disgrace is that Congress has gone on holiday, Jim. Uh, so I, I'm feeling quite pessimistic about the Ukrainian situation. There's Amer- The American military are saying that there's no reason to expect an imminent Ukrainian collapse. And I can understand fully why they are saying that, because the Russians have very stretched supply lines. They're hopeless at coordinating these attacks. They're just not very good. What they're doing is that they're just throwing prodigious quantities of men and metal at these towns like Bakhmut and Avdivka. Um, and they show no signs of being at all concerned about their casualty rates. So when you are an army like the Ukrainians, without any, with, with shortages of ammunition, you're rationing your artillery shells, and an enemy that just doesn't care about its casualty rate, you really, really are up against it. Chris, we'll wrap it there. Uh, good to talk again. We'll end on that somber note. Uh, hope to God sanity prevails within the US Congress. It has to. Talk Cheers, to Jim. Speak to you soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.